it's the book of James, chapter 3, and I'm going to start in verse 13. We know that James was the half-brother of Jesus by now. He was the leader of the Jerusalem council. He led a whole group of what we think are probably Jewish Christian churches. His uh, letter kind of has this uh, early sort of Christianity, almost Judaistic kind of flavor a little bit. And James is just such a good pastor with incredible things to say to us. And uh, tonight, we're talking about wisdom. We're talking about true wisdom versus false wisdom. And if ever we needed the wisdom of God, it's in a moment like this, isn't it? There's so much happening in our country, and there's so much happening in the church, and there's so much that feels fraught, and it feels ambiguous, and it feels uncertain. And James is a good pastor. And so what James wants to do tonight is he wants to give us lenses for understanding the wisdom that comes from heaven and the wisdom that comes from everywhere else. With that, let's bow our hearts before the Lord for a word of prayer. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. We welcome you. We welcome you, Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, the great teacher. We welcome you, Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we welcome you and we receive you tonight. We are mindful of the words of the prophet who said, Lord, you are the potter and we are the clay. We're the clay. And all of our long lives, whether we've been aware of it or not, you have been molding us and you have been shaping us and you've been making us into something very specific and very good. You're making each one of us into vessels that can contain and show forth, pour forth the very glory of God. So tonight we ask that you would take an important step forward in our lives, molding us into what you want us to be. And we're so grateful tonight that you do not intend that any one of us in this room would look exactly like anybody else. But your workmanship in us is specific and it's unique. And so we pray that we would just surrender to the power of the Holy Spirit tonight and be made into that image of Jesus Christ that God the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit is making us to be. Grant that we're asking. We say tonight, may the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen. amen. James begins, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by their good life, by the deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, well, don't boast about it and don't deny the truth either. For such wisdom doesn't come down from heaven, but it's actually earthly and it's unspiritual. It's even demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. But... The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, and then it is peace-loving, then it's considerate, then it's submissive, it's full of mercy and good fruit, it's impartial, and it's sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord, and all God's people said, thanks be to God. Uh, James has had different topics that he's kind of addressed throughout the book, and now we get to the second half of chapter three. The first half, he'd been talking about the tongue and the way that the tongue is capable both of life and of death. And of course, 
If you were here last week, you remember that James kind of shuts us up in this conundrum that only God can deliver us from. And it's a powerful teaching there in James. But now he all of a sudden seems to make another, yet another kind of hard right. And he just sort of jumps into another topic. And we go, James, we were just talking about the tongue. Now all of a sudden you have us talking about wisdom here. What is this all about? But again, James is like this really, really good teacher. And if you think back on the book of James, you'll be able to see that really he's been talking about the life of wisdom all along. The first part of chapter 1, he gave us wisdom about trials. That was 1, 2 through 18. Then he gave us wisdom about listening and doing and true religion. He gave us wisdom about favoritism. How should we behave in community towards those that are on different ends of the socioeconomic ladder? How do we behave towards them, right? He gave us wisdom about the relationship between faith and deeds in chapter 2. And then really he gave us wisdom about the right use of our speech in the beginning of chapter 3. So what he's doing there tonight or in this piece of text is that he's going to present to us a condensed summary of the wise life that he has instructed us in so far. So he sort of hinted at it and he's alluded to it. And now what he's doing is he's bringing his teaching on wisdom right out into the open for us to see. And he's giving it to us in a way that's very pithy and very memorable. And the first thing that he wants us to know about spotting wisdom begins in verse 13. Look back down at the text. James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their, what does the text say? By their good life, by the deeds done and the humility that comes from wisdom. So for James... There is an acid test to determine the presence of true wisdom. And for him, it's that. How do do you know if wisdom is really present? Well, you'll see it in a good life. The Greek is a wholesome manner of conduct, which I think is a little bit stuffy, but it's actually kind of nice. I like that. A wholesome manner of conduct, that there's something that smells good about the life of a person who is truly wise. Their good life and the deeds done in the humility, everybody say humility. The humility that comes from wisdom. So how can you spot true wisdom? But James says you'll see humility and then you'll see good deeds racing straight from that. So right out of the gate, he's helping us fix our eyes on what is true versus what is false. Now already at this point in the text, this is a huge departure from Greco-Roman culture, the surrounding culture that James was written into. One of the great New Testament scholars of our day teaches actually up at Denver Seminary, Dr. Craig Blomberg, wrote this. And he said that the humility of wisdom, I want you to listen to this, would have been an odd expression in the first century Hellenistic world. That's the Greek-speaking world. For meekness was not a well-respected trait in Greek thought. In fact, if you read some of the great Greek thinkers and writers, uh, meekness is not just not a well-respected trait, but it's thought that there's something wrong with you if you're a humble person, you know? The really wise person should be a person that has some boasting in them. There's some strength in them. You're not sort of a sniveling weakling over here in the corner. They didn't really think very highly of meekness. They didn't really think very highly, actually, of having a good life. What mattered to a lot of Greek-speaking folks was just that you were able to talk a good game. And so in the 4th and 5th centuries before Jesus, there was a group of people traveled the Mediterranean basin called the sophists that comes from the Greek word for wisdom, Sophia. And the sophists were these people who were trained in rhetoric and logic and philosophy. And these folks could pack out stadiums. And they did, amphitheaters. 
They get tons of people together and they would dazzle them with rhetorical flourishes and interesting philosophical conundrums. And they just talked this beautiful game. And the thing about the sophists is that nobody cared how they lived. And so you could be this complete corrupt human being. But as long as you got up and you talked a good game, everybody thought, oh, there goes a person of wisdom. And James comes right out of the gate swinging at all such sophistry. James does not think that just being able to talk a good game is actually the presence of wisdom. James thinks that something else must be present. Look down at verse 17. How do you know when true wisdom is present? James says, but the wisdom that comes down from heaven is first of all, what does the text say? You gotta say louder than that, pure. And then it's peace loving. And then it's considerate. And then it's, and then it's full of mercy. And it's impartial and peacemakers who in peace, they what? They reap a harvest of righteousness. Uh, James is wanting us to look at something more substantive. And so I would say tonight that James, what he's doing here in this piece of text is that James is baptizing our eyes. He's baptizing our eyes, helping us see that a life of godliness, genuine godliness, is the one infallible test of true wisdom. In other words, James is saying, who are the people that you should be listening to? It's not those that can just talk a good game. It's not those that just sound smart on the surface. It's not those that have a lot of Twitter followers. It's not those people. What you're looking for is something more wholesome. You're looking for a wholesome manner of conduct. That's what you want. He's baptizing our eyes, helping us to see that a life of godliness is the one infallible test of true wisdom. And what he's really doing as a pastor is he's trying to help us not be led astray. He's like, church, Don't be so gullible, all right? Don't be so easily impressed with people, but be more more discerning. Learn how to see past surface appearances to the depth of what's really going on. And this is always a difficult issue in the church. It's always a difficult issue in the church because it's a difficult human issue. Because we like it when people present themselves well, when they come off looking smart and sophisticated and powerful. We oftentimes mistake the presence of apparent smartness and sophistication and power and slickness. We mistake that for the presence of true wisdom. I remember being a kid, I grew up in the church and we would have traveling ministers come through our church quite often. And man, when we got a traveling minister coming in from the outside, that was a big deal. Oh, Reverend so-and-so is here from, you know, Tulsa, Oklahoma or someplace like that, someplace important, or Colorado Springs or California. You know, I grew up in a little town in central Wisconsin. And so we did not have impressive, slick people up there. But these folks would come in in three-piece suit and they're looking good. And man, when they preached, the preaching was so good. And man, they looked good. And if you got close enough to them, they even smelled good, you know, and They attracted large crowds, and we found out evangelist so-and-so was coming through the town. Everybody would come to listen to what this person had to say. And I just remember as a little guy, I remember being so impressed with these people, and we were all so impressed with these people. And the thing that was so disheartening to me over the years was how many of them bonked in their Christian journey. 
I mean, just totally fell off altogether, you know? How many of them wound up having affairs or committing fraud in some way? Or how many of them just decided that following Jesus no longer really commended itself to their intellectual faculties and they decided to peel off on the journey and always their departures from the faith or their fall from grace in some way or another, it would so rock the saints. Why? Because those folks had hitched their sense of importance to the surface appearance of this person. And it turns out that the reason that that person fell off in one way or another was because at their core, what they didn't love was wisdom. What they only really loved was a sense of their own self-importance. What they only really loved was was empire building or platform building. What they only really loved was the crowds of adoring people. And of course, no human being in this room or any room is one thing or another. I'm sure there was a core of purity in them, but somehow it got eclipsed by these other things and, and they fell off. And Man, that's a difficult thing, guys. In the church, what we're trying to cultivate is the presence of true wisdom. And it's so easy to be led astray, isn't it? The great American writer, Marilyn Robinson, wrote this wonderful book, Gilead, about the life of a pastor in Iowa back in the mid-20th centuries. And this pastor, he's an old man. He's been pastoring these people for a long time. And he's kind of bellyaching a little bit about his flock. And he says, two or three ladies, he said, had pronounced views on certain points of doctrine which they never learned from me, he said. I blame the radio for sowing a good deal of confusion where theology is concerned. And he says, television is even worse. You can spend 40 years teaching people to be awake to the fact of mystery. And then a fellow with no more theological sense than a jackrabbit gets himself a radio ministry and all your work is forgotten. (laughs) He says, I do wonder where it will all end. But it's true, guys. The flock is constantly being distorted by people who have a big platform and they look successful and they look wise and their lives are empty. Guys, it happens now. And we judge the authoritative voice of a person now, honestly, by how many Twitter followers they have. 25,000 Twitter followers, right? You must have something to say, right? Or how many YouTube subscribers they have or how popular their little minute and a half sermon videos are or how many copies of their book, they said, you know, this person made it to the New York Times bestseller list. This is clearly a wise person. And I'm telling you, this is a pastor pleading with you now. The rules of the game are rigged to elevate non-wisdom. If you didn't hear me, let me say it again. The rules of the game are elevated, are rigged to elevate non-wisdom. And that doesn't mean if a person is popular that they're not wise, but I'm saying that the playing field is tilted towards that. And we have to become more discerning. We have to become more discerning. And James is helping us become more discerning. James wants us to see that when all we're doing is platform building, when all we're doing is sort of celebrating the voice of this person or that person, that somehow, and when we're not paying attention to the core of life, that somehow what's going on is you have this, at least an absence of heaven, that most the presence of hell. Look at what he says in verse 14. He says that if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. But such wisdom, he says, doesn't come down from heaven at all, but it's earthly and it's unspiritual, he says, and it's demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. Do you know, brothers and sisters, so much 
of the effort of trying to get ahead. And so much of those folks out there that are platform building, what they're really in love with is not wisdom itself, but what they're in love with is the idea of becoming more popular. (laughs) They're just trying to climb up to the mountain. And what James says is that that is not an innocuous thing in the church. He says that where you have envy, where you have selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. In other words, that effort to exalt the self and to get ahead of other people and to build your name and to build your brand, what that does is it swings the door open for evil in the church. Is anybody following me tonight? We gotta become more discerning. We gotta become more discerning. And I'm talking especially tonight to the young people who are among us. Man, when you're at this age, under 18 years old, people that are popular, it's so like, oh, your heart lurches towards that. You go, well, look at so-and-so or this person over there. And your heart so easily gravitates to that. And James's wisdom is the wisdom that we need. It's the wisdom to see that the thing that matters is not that we can talk a good game. The thing that matters is the presence of godliness in my life. The people that have benefited me the most in my life are folks whose names you will never hear about on the internet. And you'll never read about in magazines and they'll probably never write books when they're not very popular people. But I didn't, I especially remember how crucial this became to me when I was a young pastor serving in Denver. We moved out to Denver to help our friends plant a church. I was 28 years old when we did that. And man, I remember getting into that gig thinking I went to seminary and I've got a few kids and I've been married a little while and I'm the ripe old age of 28. I think I've got this. We got this in the bag, you know. You get a few months into it and you start realizing that you have flaws in your character and you have holes in the way that you approach life and you also begin realizing that you're not as amazing as you thought you were. You know, I remember getting several months into our new church plant and I really thought that by the time we kind of found our groove a few months in, that folks would be coming by the hundreds, you know, just jamming our church to the gills. And we got several months into it and they were staying away by the thousands, you know? <laughs> like, I need help, I need help. And I remember thinking the help that I need is gonna come from people who have lived this a lot longer than me. They've done it successfully. They've stayed in the journey. And Mandy and I found folks like Colin and Diane Campbell. This wonderful couple, 25 years older than us, Colin and Diane, as wise as wise gets and prophetic to the core. And we would go and when we were distraught and we needed wisdom and we needed help, we would call up Colin and Diane and we would go, help, can you meet for coffee? Can we get together for lunch? Could you come over to our house? And Colin and Diane would come over. We'd go and see them and we'd pour our hearts out and they would listen. And instead of getting prescription, giving prescriptions, what they would do is they would help us spot the presence of Jesus in our lives. They would help us work through issues. They would carry us before the Lord. I can't tell you how many times we'd be pouring our hearts out and the tears would be flowing down. And Colin and Diane would say, this moment right here, this is a sacred moment. This is holy ground. Let's stay in this place. And we begin to pray and listen to the Holy Spirit. And Colin and Diane would always have a word in due season for us. They just knew exactly what to say and no more and no less than what the Lord was saying. And over the years, they carried us in prayer. I can't tell you how many times 
Mandy and I would just be in the thick of it and trying to work our way through some issue. And I'd wake up in the morning and I'd have an email in my inbox from Colin and Diane. Hey guys, haven't heard from you in a couple of weeks. Don't exactly know what's going on, but we were up this morning and, and we were praying for you. And the Lord gave us this image and this word for you. And here's a few paragraphs for you. And why don't you take this before the Lord? And I, how many times, honey, was it dead on the money? Like they'd been in our living room with us. Like they'd seen our tears, like they'd heard us wailing the night before. They were somehow, because they were connected with God and they knew the life of holiness, they could transmit that in some way to us, pass that on to us. Brothers and sisters, we need these people. You young people need these people. And you know what I found out actually is that the older that you get, you never actually graduate from it. The older you get, sometimes it seems the more complex and complicated life gets. And so it becomes all the more crucial to have eyes that are trained to see the presence of wisdom. James says, who are the wise and understanding ones among you? They're the ones who can demonstrate it by their good life, by the deeds done and the humility that comes from wisdom. Church, we are that community that has been given birth by the wisdom of God. We exist in the wisdom of God. We need to be a community that shares the wisdom of God. Who should we be impressed with? James wants to ask us. What kind of a life should we desire? Verse 17, he gives us some definitions. Let's just work through this real quick. I want you just to take these words in your heart. Think this through. He says, this is what the wisdom that comes down from heaven looks like. You want to spot true wisdom? It looks like this. It looks like purity. Purity is the quality of being completely Godward in orientation. Have you ever met somebody that when you talked to them, it wasn't a superficial kind of godliness, but you knew that the whole bent of their life was towards God? Those are the kind of people to be around. Pure. What kind of people should you emulate? What kind of people do you, should you try to be like? People that are peace-loving. To be peace-loving means that you're you live a life that's conducive to harmonious relationships, all right? You ever meet those people that just leave disasters of relationships wherever they go? You ever meet those people that their only way of being on social media is that they stir up strife? It's not the wisdom of God. What is the wisdom of God? It's pure, it's peace-loving. James says that it's considerate. What does it mean to be considerate? That we don't insist on every right or letter of law or custom, but we're yielding. Think about that. We're gentle. We're kind. We're courteous. We're tolerant. What else does wisdom look like? Consider we're submissive. Being submissive doesn't just mean that we let people roll over us all the time. Being submissive means that we're open to reason. You ever meet those folks that whenever you get in a tiny little bit of an argument with them, the walls all of a sudden go up? There's, not, there's something unyielding about them. It's not a wise person. James says that the wise are actually so wise that they know they might be wrong. (laughs) Which makes them submissive. They're open to reason. They're compliant. They're obedient. Because of all this, they're full of mercy and good fruit. Their lives are exploding with good things. James says that they're impartial. That means that they're not judgmental and they're not divisive. He also says that they're sincere. Think about this definition. They are without pretense. There's not a trace of hypocrisy. What you see is what you get. 
These people are guileless. James says that the wisdom that comes down from heaven is first of all pure, and then it's peace-loving, it's considerate, it's submissive, it's full of mercy and good fruit, it's impartial, it's sincere. And then he says that those who sow in peace will raise a harvest of righteousness. Brothers and sisters, what kind of a world do you want to live in? I want to live in a world that's marked by these things. And you know what? It turns out that James, who grew up with Jesus, the son of the living God, I think that when James wrote this list, I think that he was describing his brother. <laughs> who among us was pure like Jesus was pure? And who among us was peace-loving like Jesus was peace-loving? And who among us was considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere like Christ the Lord was? Guys, this is a description of Jesus, for Jesus is the wisdom of God made flesh. Not divisive, not envious, not prideful. There's no boasting, there's not a rude thing in his body. Jesus is the one who welcomes us in. Jesus is the one who heals all things. Jesus is the one who allows himself to be broken against all of our unwisdom. Jesus is the one who sows his own body in peace and even now is raising up a harvest of righteousness, brothers and sisters. This is a description of Christ the Lord. And one of Jesus' best friends, John, said, 1 John in chapter 5, chapter 2, he says that whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. This is our call. And you and I, brothers and sisters, right now, we live in a strife-ridden, strife-filled, angry, violent, divided world. And you know what I think our world needs now more than ever? It's people like this. It's people like this. They buried George Floyd a couple weeks ago down in Houston where he grew up. Thousands of people came. There's national outrage, anger, vitriol, division everywhere. And here is a moment, if ever there was a moment, you know, to capture that anger, to capture rage, to shake your fist at somebody. And do you know what they said about the funeral of George Floyd? That there was not an angry vengeful, hate-filled word spoken during that entire time. They said that all that was spoken were words of unity and love and grace and appreciation and thanksgiving and celebration for Christ the Lord who conquered death. Brothers and sisters, that's the presence of wisdom. That right there is the presence of the kingdom of God. And when we yield ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, the scripture says that we become as he is. We become this kind of people, pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. We become people who sow in peace and in a divided, angry, unrighteous world, we begin raising up a harvest of righteousness. Can you receive that tonight?